Welcome to the 168th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. What can you learn during a 24-hour period of quote-unquote blitzing through a native prairie and marking down every species of critter and plant that might reveal itself to you during that period? It turns out such a quick biological scavenger hunt can provide a surprisingly deep understanding of not only what lives in such a habitat, but what role human beings can play in keeping it healthy enough to support all those wild residents, as well as ecosystem services such as clean water. That's the goal of the Simon Lake BioBlitz, which was held on a weekend in mid-July both in 2014 and 2015. The events, which were put on by the Land Stewardship Project, Chippewa River Watershed Project, and Clean Up the River Environment, brought volunteers and naturalists together in a part of west-central Minnesota that has a mix of farms, native tall grass prairie, and recreational lands. Specifically, the BioBlitzers spent several hours hiking a natural area owned by the Nature Conservancy called Sheepberry Fen. The fen includes a mix of dry upland prairie and oak savanna and a large groundwater-fed wetland complex called a calcareous fen. Sheepberry Fen is special but it's just one parcel in an area of the state where several remnants of highly threatened native tallgrass prairie grow. These prairie areas are controlled by a hodgepodge of landowners in an area called Simon Lake. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources manage some of these natural lands, while the Nature Conservancy owns areas like Sheepberry Fen. Other private parties have bought real estate in the area to use for hunting and various recreational purposes. Finally, several farmers are producing cattle and other livestock, as well as hay, on grasslands they own and rent in the area. One thing all of these landowners agree on is that grasslands in this region are threatened by invasive species such as sumac and Siberian elm, as well as increased monocrops of corn and soybeans. For the past few years, the Land Stewardship Project and other groups have been working with landowners to develop a cooperative landscape management system that will help control invasive species across public, and private boundaries, while providing healthy grass habitat for wildlife and livestock. That's why during the BioBlitz events, participants also took a look at some private land across the road from Sheepberry Fen that's being managed with cattle to control invasives and bring diversity back to the landscape. The land and cattle belong to local livestock producer and LSP staffer Andy Markham. Sheepberry Fen is in the Chippewa River watershed, which drains into the Minnesota River a waterway that bisects the state before dumping its load into the Mississippi. If people can figure out how to support the kind of perennial plant systems that reduce the amount of eroded soil and other contaminants that go into the Chippewa, it will have positive impacts all the way downstream to the Gulf of Mexico. I've participated in both the 2014 and 2015 Simon Lake BioBlitz events. After the latest event, I interviewed a few of the people involved. First, I chatted with Robin Moore, a Land Stewardship Project organizer, who coordinated the bio-blitzes. She described the basic idea of such an event and how conservation grazing and other practices have already had a positive impact on biodiversity in the area. Well, yeah, a traditional bio-blitz is 24 hours where professionals or people who are good at identifying local species and then volunteers go out together and catalog as many species as they can in a, that given amount of time. We're doing a bio-blitz because in this area we are doing some work with prairie management with cattle as well as fire and um, working on controlling invasives. And so we had these bio-blitzes to kind of take a baseline of what species are present. So when we come back in four or five years, we can see if diversity increases, 
or populations increase and hopefully see a really good result from the animal impact. I know it's too early and we, you know, this is just, in fact, we're just starting the second the, the second morning of the BioBlitz itself, but is there some things that maybe people would already note as different about, I know that we're using grazing here, we, we're standing here on Andy Markham's land, and, and he's across the road from the actual Nature Conservancy land, the Sheepberry Fen, and, and they're using grazing and they've been using burning on the Nature Conservancy land as well to manage some of these invasives, try to improve this grassland. Is there something people would notice maybe even just within the last couple of years about changing of the, of the of some of the uh, plant communities in the in the area here? Yeah, on Andy's property two years ago, you couldn't have even walked across this area. And it was mowed last year. And um, this spring, all the areas where there had been um, cedars and sumacs were literally covered in pasque flowers. I mean, just the explosion of native species was really drastic. There's also just a really great diversity in this area where of so many different plants. The plant people can't go five feet without just dropping to the ground and going crazy with all the things to look at. And literally, you couldn't walk through this. There wasn't anything but sumac in this area just two years ago. And the cattle have really, I mean, you don't see sumac. And the cattle have really kept that down. The prairie really needs some carefully managed animal impact to, to really get that diversity. And you can see that Andy has been really careful. He doesn't open graze. He rotationally grazes. And there's a significant animal impact for a short amount of time. And then they don't come back the rest of the year. And you can, like you said, you can see the results of that right away. The animals are generally on a parcel for not over a week, depending on um, what the forage is like and what's going on with the ground. In the wet spot, they're only there for a couple of days, um, but they're only they're only here for a week. And prior to that, that brome culture that you were seeing, plus the sumac, was a result of this land laying, not being managed in any way for 50 years. And so it's really changed a lot in the last three years that there's been grazing and changed for for the better. I mean, the habitat is just really expanded for all kinds of native species, birds, bugs, lizards, badgers. (laughs) Could you just describe a little bit? So we're standing here. We have sheepberry fin across the road where the um, this calcareous fin is, this kind of special wetland. And then what are we kind of looking direction towards Andy's land where he has been doing the grazing. Can you describe a little bit this landscape? It's pretty kind of dramatic in a way. Um, you know, a lot of people think western Minnesota, oh, it's flat prairie or whatever, cornfields, bean fields, but this is kind of dramatic. Could you describe it just a little bit? Uh, this is beautiful glacial, glacial till with really stark hills and lowlands. Um, the fens, the calcified fens, are where water seeps up from beneath, and that's really special and unique. There's open sky, and you can hear eagles and all kinds of birds, and it's as almost as far as you can see. It's a, it's it truly is a magical place, and it is a dramatic landscape. Lots of little small wetlands and lakes as well in the little corners. Um, all kinds of geese. You can hear sandhill cranes in the morning. Um, there's several. I saw four kinds of ducks on the way here this morning. Two clutches of wild turkeys. Just a lot of all kinds of habitat diversity. And so we have a situation here where we're kind of in corn soybean country as you get beyond this area, this immediate area here. But this area here still has a fair bit of farmers who are trying to use grassland who have livestock. And so that that gives us a little bit of a I guess a foundation for supporting a system that needs more perennial 
systems. And I, and I know you and Andy had come in and talked to landowners, both farmers and non-farmers, about some common goals they had. And it turned out that grassland was a very important piece of that. Yeah, a lot of people in this area really want to keep this beauty and not just to look at, but also to support families. And so the working together with animals as part of this management project has made some pasture available where pasture was disappearing. A lot of grasslands were getting dug up for corn and beans in the last five to ten years, and land prices are unreachable in a lot of ways. So this has really made it possible to take care of this landscape that people care so much about and are really aware of being an endangered landscape and provide ways for, for farmers to stay here and continue to make a living while taking care of this incredible environment. The community has come together. We have recreational landowners, farm farmers, um, private agencies, and public agencies, DNR, Fish and Wildlife, Nature Conservancy, have all come together, and, are, and they are making the decisions and agreeing to do things from the citizens up. The people who live here and work here and are invested here are the ones making the decisions for the conservation of the area. And we just really believe that the people who are expected to maintain it and take care of it should be the ones that make that decision on on how to do it as a community. Next, Dwayne Nineman, the Executive Director of Clean Up the River Environment, Discussed how an event like a BioBlitz helps get at the root of what it really takes to clean up a waterway as big as the Minnesota River. We actually work on the Minnesota River Basin from one end to the next. And so uh, currently we're in one of the tributaries, the Chippewa, and the Chippewa drains into the Minnesota at Montevideo uh, from north to south. So this is part of our work, healthy watershed, improved biodiversity, making sure we maintain uh, good viewscapes and landscapes on the watershed as well. How does how does this fit into the, the scheme of things as far as um, going into a, a sub-watershed like this? And you mentioned a little bit this kind of educational component, but people becoming more, I guess, how key is it for people maybe before they know what they're going to protect, they kind of got to know what is out there kind of thing? Is, I mean, is that an important part of watershed work. I guess what I'm getting at is people say, yeah, I'm in favor of clean water. I don't dump garbage in the water, so I guess I'm cool, you know, I'm set. But this kind of gets more at, well, there's more of a personal stake you can have in it kind of thing. There is a lot of complexity around water quality, and um, it's all about um, how we behave as human beings in the basin, both politically and sociologically and so on. But at its root, it's about land use. And so with the great majority of the Minnesota River Basin uh, having uh, been put into row crop or urban uses or something else, uh, these places, these remnant spaces in the watershed really show us what it looked like when things functioned properly and provided for all those environmental services, including clean water, um, before we decided to manage it primarily for human beings and profit. For those of us who really love the understanding of biodiversity, there are many master naturalists here today, for instance, from the university system. So um, it's incredible for us nature nerds to see all the plants and all of the insects and the birds and the mammals and most importantly in this lesson how to manage property so that it is both beneficial to agriculture and for private use Uh, and uh, if it can't be set aside just for nature itself there are so many things that we can do to provide those environmental services to make sure that the land is managed better and this is a perfect example. I think that's a really good example that maybe the kind of the 
common thought would be, well, as long as we have this land protected and hands off, then everything's great. But that it, it we're not in that pristine wilderness type situation. This is we're in the midst of a working landscape kind of thing. That's right. And if, if we don't have a better understanding of how uh, that landscape functions, we're going to con- continually slip farther behind providing those environmental services like clean water because that is how the land is going to be managed. It's going to be managed for agriculture and other human uses. If we can figure out better ways to farm and better ways to graze uh, and to make sure that we have grazing with farming, uh, we're going to provide for more clean water. Finally, Peg Fershong, the Director of Constituent Engagement and Operations at Clean Up the River Environment, Describe the importance of using citizen science to connect people to the landscape they live in and how issues such as soil health can bring environmentalists and farmers together. Things that happen up here, like where we're at today at Simon Lake, water comes from here and it ends up in the Gulf. And so, of course, anything we're doing up here is going to impact. And if we can, uh, upstream always impacts downstream. And the Minnesota actually is one of the top polluters to the Mississippi, to the Gulf We have a lot of issues in the river, and this is a great example of addressing some of those primary concerns with agriculture and a local solution-based effort to uh, manage the land, care for the prairie, the animals that they're raising, everything. It's just a complete circle that comes full circle here. There And this is a form of citizen science volunteering where uh, people who are not experts, they're volunteers, this is their passion, come out and they document the land. And, and you know, maybe Robin had mentioned this before, but we're trying to document the species here so that when the local folks here who are making the decisions about how things are going to be done here implement their first or second level of their plan, we can come back in maybe three or four years and we can see how effective the plan was and how it may or may not have protected the prairie. Because these agencies, they're great people. They really care about what they're doing. They care about the state. They care about our resources. But because they're limited in what they can do, um, sometimes they're making decisions in St. Paul for people out here. And I think that's one of the great things about the collaboration here is it's local solution-based. And when you have farmers coming together to do a project like this and then volunteers like us coming out to learn about it, there's buy-in locally and it's more sustainable um, than somebody making a decision up the road three hours. I think maybe some people in the environmental community might be surprised because, frankly, there's been a lot of bad news lately coming out of the impact that agriculture is having on water quality. Sometimes that can really set up some uh, some real animosity between the environmental community and the agricultural community. Now, people might be surprised that farmers are, are not being seen as the enemy, frankly, or whatever, but that they're being brought in as allies on something like this. I mean, how important is that? You know, CURE being a water organization, we've been around for almost 23 years now. We're in our 23rd year. We've been trying to improve water quality in the Minnesota for years. And About three years ago when I came on, we started talking about how effective we've been or not and how much the water quality has changed or not. And we realized that um, that animosity we're talking about, if if we approach a farmer as cure and we want to talk to them about water quality, you know, justifiably so, probably shut down. So we started reframing the question around soil health or the problem around soil health. And if if you can sit down with a farmer and talk about soil health... um, they're intrigued because they know soil, they're dependent upon soil for their living, no matter what they do, whether they graze or they, whatever they do. They're more willing to sit and at least listen and maybe be more open-minded. And we know at Cure 
that if the soil's healthier, the water's going to be healthier because the water has to pass through that soil. And if it's good soil, it's going to do a much better job of purifying the water, keeping the, the silt and all of that where it needs to be, and it's not going to end up in the river. And that's super important to us. We can come together on these issues that we share uh, common values on and common challenges on, and we feel like we're better together. It's a great point I, that kind of finding some common ground, say, with farmers, between the farmers and people who are interested in cleaning up the water. You know, the soil is one, and I, I know we're seeing right here locally, better grass is, is a real common one, too, that people really want to see. That was they didn't realize maybe they had that in common, <laughs> and that uh, critical thinking around our landscape and where we live uh, is really important to have those conversations. And we might not all be on the same page, but I think there's a lot of common values that we can agree upon, and we can make this place better than it was and leave it better than we we found it. <laughs> For more information on the Simon Lake BioBlitz and community conservation, see www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.